does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? I didn't. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus no. Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes. Oh, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 150, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, we finally get here. I think there's been a lot of debate over time as to how we would tackle this. It's certainly, you know, when we talk about just undeniably great movies, this is right up there. But sometimes it's hard... I mean, what are we going to do? Just blow this thing for three hours? <laughs> I mean, it could happen. Yeah, I think before we even say anything... Follow I think, the show on Twitter. No, I think we <laughs> should just acknowledge that, yes, this episode will probably be long. Right. It will probably have a lot of clips. I mean, my life has been crazy lately. I'm already feeling like Mia Wallace after that adrenaline shot. <laughs> <laughs> I just think... Every now and then you have to really celebrate yourselves, and that's what we're doing <laughs> with episode 150. <laughs> oh, is that right? It's the most self-indulgent thing we could possibly do is yeah. pick this movie, which means so much to us and has meant so much to us for so long. I mean, you knew we were going to get here at some point. Yes. I mean, we've only done, as far as Tarantino-directed films, Jackie Brown. True. We also did that's right. True Romance. And, of course, we would follow up one of my all-time favorite movies, I know what you did last summer, <laughs> with one of my other favorite <laughs> movies of all time, 
Yeah, I definitely think that the 90s is our wheelhouse for sure. I love to do movies from all eras. What's not to like? But 90s is like a real strong I'm with you. suit for us, I think. So Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. It was Quentin Tarantino's follow-up to Reservoir Dogs, written and directed by Story with Roger Avery. We'll talk about yes. Roger a little bit later. Didn't quite go as well for him. No. I mean, I think we don't need to spend a ton of time on the folklore and the legend of everything. The There's two of them working there, at a video store. Yeah. My best friend's birthday or whatever that short film was that was mostly lost in a fire. Okay. All the different Tarantino history, him trying to make it as an actor, him sleeping on couches, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Essentially, I was going to save this particular comment for a little later, but I'll just say it now. I mean, everything we could possibly tell you about Pulp Fiction has already been said somewhere by someone 10 million Absolutely. times. Yes. This film is in our bones, it's in our DNA. I, it's hard to know. For sure, if a single day in my life has gone by since I first saw the film where it hasn't crossed my mind at least once for those during you, a day. Yeah. For those of you keeping track at home, Zach is wearing his Jackie Brown t-shirt. Yes. Did you wear your Sharon Stone t-shirt for the Basic Instinct episode? It's too small now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have we'll a lot talk of about shirts that left later. that yeah. fit. <laughs> I, I mean, there's really no, nothing we can say about Pulp Fiction that you couldn't read somewhere or whatever. And we'll, we'll definitely pepper in little nuggets and factoids about it. But it's mostly going to be about our reaction to it, as every episode inevitably is. Right. So how old were you when this came out? Eleven. Yeah. I was seven, I think, so. <laughs> well, I didn't see it until yeah, right. way later. Oh, sure, same. But it is. it would have been interesting if we were of the age when this came out i mean would we have stopped talking about it yeah for years after seeing it i'm sure well you know what an interesting little note is as far as the release of Pulp fiction it was released into theaters in the u.s on the same exact day as the shawshank redemption wow two movies holy shit that both got seven oscar nom nominations and are both currently in the imdb top 10 that is nuts we're released on the same day. Now, this that Friday, we have big weekend at The, the Kitchen and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark are released on the same <laughs> day. Right. We're living in hell. <laughs> hey, I mean, there's always some bad weekends. <laughs> this movie is the first film that was fully financed by Miramax, which at the time wow, was sore subject. run by Harvey and Bob Weinstein, which we're not really going to talk about. I mean, no, but what I will can you say? say? I don't know. <laughs> For some reason, and the name, when you find out that it's just the Weinstein's parents' names, you're like, oh, okay. But for some reason, like, long before I knew that, I always thought Miramax was a great name for, like, a film company. Yeah. It just seemed cool to me. Maybe it was the movies they were making, but obviously Tarantino had a long history of releasing movies with the Weinsteins before this most recent one. Right. Up until this movie, they were mostly in the business of acquiring the rights to like foreign films or indie films that had already been made, similarly to how they did with like Clerks. Like they definitely pumped some money into Clerks to do like a better soundtrack and everything, but yeah, yeah. the bulk of the film had been made. I mean, it was pretty much done when they took it to Sundance and right. Miramax bought it. But with Pulp Fiction, I think Tarantino and his partner Lawrence Bender who was his producer for most of his early films 
they had already had a deal with Columbia TriStar or something. Okay. And they read the script to this and were like, "What? what is this? This is insane. We can't make this. <laughs> I mean. What is this, like an eight-hour we'll, movie? And we'll get into that as we go. Just the, everything that was so crazy about this movie at the time, which uh, I think seems less crazy now. Absolutely but it does. It took a lot of bravado on the part of Tarantino to be like, yes, I can make this movie and it will make sense. Because when you read the script I think at that how time how long did that take reading the script yeah the script <laughs> I think on some of the bonus features it may have been like Stoltz or somebody was like the script weighed 14 pounds <laughs> but like it wasn't even just the length of it it was the fact that you had a main character die unceremoniously but then was alive later in the oh, script right, you right, know it, yeah. people were like what what like it didn't make any sense to people reading it they weren't they didn't get it and so the fact that they had cold feet about making this movie as the follow-up to Reservoir Dogs is not necessarily shocking. I mean, obviously it turned out to be a mistake. This movie was hugely successful, critically and financially. But at that point, Tarantino kind of becomes like a free agent because it's like a, like a first refusal type deal with oh, yeah. Columbia at that point. And so Miramax comes in. They love the script, and they decide to go all in. I guess, thankfully for them, they get Bruce Willis to be in it which guaranteed like $11 million in foreign rights or something. Okay. Which guaranteed the movie to be profitable before it was even made. Wow, how about that? <laughs> as long as you kept the budget to $8.5 million, they knew they had $11 million guaranteed, so everything was going to work out anyway. Sounds like a sure thing. Which is a big reason why they wanted a movie star like Bruce Willis to appear in the film. Right. <laughs> even though it's more like an ensemble cast. I would say. Yeah, and I mean, Willis doesn't come into the movie until pretty deep into it. Yeah. I mean, there's the and scene with him up, and Marcellus. Well, true, and he eats up a big chunk of it. Yeah. Like I said, $8.5 million budget ends up making $213.9 million at the Worldwide Box Office. However, I mean, I imagine that's been probably doubled since then in far, as far as all of the people that own it on <laughs> yeah, VHS, so. DVD, Blu-ray. Etc. Etc. I think the movie continues to make a lot of money every year. It was the Palme d'Or winner at the 94 Cannes Film Festival, seven Academy Award nominations, and it basically took the world by storm. It was unlike anything people were seeing at that time, and it became one of the most copied movies of its day. And it led to a boom in independent film, which Absolutely, had already been which building. Is cool. Yeah. It had been building since 89 with right. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, but this created just a huge market because of the financial success of the film. It is nuts, too. I mean, you watch this. It does not feel like a low-budget movie. No, no, and that was something that was talked about even at the time, even when they were making it. Tarantino was like, I it think I can make polished. this look like a 20 to $25 million movie, yeah. which in 94 was a decent amount. Yeah, it doesn't seem indie. <laughs> Right, yeah. And part of that is because here we are 25 years later and we're like, well, Samuel Jackson's a big star. John Travolta's a big star. Uma Thurman's a big star. I don't know. You know are what people I mean? saying like, that about Travolta now? Well, you know what I mean. But we know <laughs> yeah. like he went on to make a lot of big movies afterwards. For sure. yes. And so it, it seems like, oh, well, this must have been a big cast. But it's like, well, no. In 94, other than Bruce Willis, it was a lot of random names. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, Stoltzy was in it, though. That's true. <laughs> The original Marty McFly. That's right. Samuel L. Jackson had been in Jurassic Park the year before. Oh, so it's wow. not like he was it's like a, unknown. Yeah, that's weird to me to think that Jurassic Park came up before this even. 
Yeah, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's first acting credit is like 1973 or something like wow. that. Well, yeah, I mean, he is pretty old. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he was born in like 1948 or something. <laughs> but he wasn't like Samuel L. Jackson as we know him. Until this. Yeah. This was the right. kickoff of like an unexpected. <laughs> the one that says bad motherfucker. Second act to a career that's gone on for 25 years that yeah, yeah. no one would have seen coming at that point. I mean, he has, what, one line of dialogue, maybe two in True Romance. It's maybe one of the funniest things I've oh, ever sure. heard. Yeah. But, you know, he's not like, he's. In, that's a year prior to this. Right. And now he's, there's an entire character that was written for him by Quentin Tarantino because yeah, he auditioned for Reservoir Dogs and didn't get it. And then Tarantino sees him at this festival, I think it was at Sundance when Reservoir Dogs was playing. And he's like, oh, hey, man, what do you think about that guy that got your part? And, and Samuel Jackson didn't know what to say. And he's like, oh, well, don't worry about it. I'm writing you something. And and he's like, what? He, he didn't know, even know what that meant. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you mean you're writing something for me? And then it was this. Essentially, Pulp Fiction is a large narrative told out of chronological order that follows three main interrelated stories. The first focuses primarily on Vincent Vega, a mob contract killer. The second highlights the story of Butch Coolidge, a fading prize fighter, and finally the third, which turns the spotlight onto Jules Winfield, Vincent's partner. These three main stories are presented between the beginning and end oh, wow. of a diner holdup staged by yeah. a criminal couple. That's I always was thinking that Pumpkin and Honey Bunny were one of the stories as well. There's not really that much time dedicated to their characters. Yeah, yeah. The structural form is an episodic narrative with circular events adding a beginning and end and allowing references to elements of each separate episode to be made throughout the narrative. It's really hard to explain to someone who hasn't seen the movie how it works, but it's basically just a bunch of different episodes told out of order. True. Some people have, over time, I think, been critical of that decision because they assume, well, why do this? They don't see an immediate reason to tell it out of order, but... I think one of the joys well, it keeps you of, off guard. Yeah, one of the joys of the movie is you don't really know what's going to happen next or where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Everything catches you off guard, especially the first couple times you see it. You're trying to piece everything together. That seems strange to me that people would be critical of that. To me, that always jumps out as one of the things that's unique about it. There are a lot of things that people are critical of that always surprise me. Well, that's true. I guess we'll get there with his newest movie. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how much I want to get into all that garbage, but... Okay. For our listeners... I bet we will, though. <laughs> I don't know. Do we need? The, do we want this to be four hours that's or five? True, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I feel like we have to try to get past I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah, well, I think we like, will. Okay. Okay, so for our listeners... For our new listeners in particular, who started off with a fucking two-hour epic. Oh, you mean I Know What You Did? Yeah, well, I was just going to say that at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... We will give a spoiler alert before we jump into it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. It's currently in theaters. I recommend checking it out. For those of you who listened to the uh, Hollywood Roundup episode or whatever we did, Movie News Roundup, I have since seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> well, I think it was my recommendation on the I Know What You Did Last Summer, so I think we probably mentioned that we had seen it okay, yeah. and our feelings generally of it. But we're going to talk about it a little bit more in depth. One more time. I know, well, I know that there's been some requests out there about our there takes have been, on yeah, that's right. the new Quentin Tarantino. Keith, certainly. So we're going to talk about Good Tarantino's to career 
in general. We're going to give our ranking of his nine films, in our opinion, and then we're going to talk about the new movie at the end after we talk about Pulp Fiction. So, so it's a little bit like of a bo- special bonus for episode right. number 150. Actually, at some point, we're going to talk a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then like later on, we're going to come back to it unexpectedly. You know, we're going to go out of order, just like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Yeah, we should have done like an an entire Tarantino career re- retrospective, right? But started with like the middle part of Death Proof, yeah. <laughs> and then just gone from there. And it's like a thirty hour episode, right? Right. <laughs> the first time I saw Pulp Fiction was probably very late nineties or even two thousand two thousand one. I don't know. I, my memory I know is not that. great anymore. I don't have like I can't just recall the first time I saw a lot of this stuff on. VHS because I was watching a lot of movies in a short amount of time. I was playing catch up <laughs> to all the cool shit I never knew about. Yeah, I mean, weirdly, I I can't remember when I saw this movie the whole way through the first time. I can remember, however, the first time I saw a scene from this movie, okay, which was in like eighth grade. We did this whole project or whatever where each person had to do a presentation, and as part of it, you played like your favorite song and you played like a clip from your favorite movie and somebody played a clip from this which was crazy <laughs> because it was fucking check out the big brain on brett scene or whatever i was just like does marcellus wallace look like a bitch you know I, was like, <laughs> I mean there was definitely f-bombs being dropped and you know the teacher was like riding the stop button or whatever <laughs> but i was like all right that's pulp fiction i don't think i actually saw it the whole way through for another few years probably I saw it around the same time that I saw Reservoir Dogs, although I think I saw Pulp Fiction first. It probably would have been within weeks of each other or something. It was a lot of blockbuster Hollywood video trips, the old VHS days. Ah, the good old days. It really was a Knives Chow situation. Wow, you just found out. It's like I didn't know there was cool movies until like six weeks ago. (laughs) You know, and you're trying to catch up. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't even know there was good music until like two months ago. I've spent my whole life trying to catch up. For people that don't have like an older sibling to show you cool shit, you just kind of have to you gotta find it. You got to find the way, right. Yeah, you just are like, oh, wow, there's all this stuff. And then next thing you know, you're obsessed with it and you're watching every Kevin Smith movie, every Quentin Tarantino movie, every David Fincher movie. You're buying crazy-ass Tarantino box sets. Well, they didn't even have them back then. I mean, this oh, is VHS. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, it would eventually lead to. Sure. And I think, and this is definitely not unique to me or you or anyone, but Pulp Fiction was certainly unlike anything else, even all of that other cool shit, because it was just so different. I mean, still to this day, that statement holds up, I feel like. Right. And no matter how much you know about movies and how how into all these different things you get into, you're never going to know as much as Quentin Tarantino. And so his style, especially at that point, was so much like this thing called a pastiche, you know, the combination of all these different things. Right. It's more homage than parody or anything like that. That's the thing. I mean, I'm sure you could fill me in on several things that are being referenced in this movie that I like have no idea about. Yeah, and I don't really want to get lost in all that shit. The the cool thing about Quentin, though, and this is still the same all the way up to even his most recent movie, it's the combination of the high and the low. (laughs) It's as high art as it can get in terms of film, like the French New Wave or 
the great Italian directors of like the fifties and sixties or any art house film, but it's also like black exploitation or like shitty right. slasher yeah. movies. Which is what always makes him fun. Or like random Roger Corman movies from the fifties and sixties that no one remembers or you can't even get on DVD now or whatever. You know, yeah, just I mean all kinda, kinds of shit. It reminds me of this podcast really. A little bit of the class and a little bit of the trash. You well, know? I, I think that's the influence on my life and probably yours and a lot of other people sure, yeah. that Quentin Tarantino's had. I definitely think that the films of Tarantino and Kevin Smith in that time period of watching all the shit had the biggest impact on me more than almost any other pop culture thing that I'd ever experienced. It's probably true. I, it's hard to even measure it because it's a an influence that's still going on now like 20 years later <laughs> in my life at well, least. Yeah. I guess you could say, I don't know if, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say this is like a downside to it, but certainly one of the effects is Tarantino and Pulp Fiction gave birth to a new generation of cool, and because of that, it spawned a million copycats, some good, some bad. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of... Often replicated, never duplicated. Yeah, but I think it also influenced people, too, in a good sure. way. Because yeah. I'm, I'm sure tons of young people picked up cameras and were like, well, I could do this. I could be a filmmaker. And a lot of those people probably turned out good. They oh, didn't yeah. just try to like emulate his style because I think that's almost impossible to do. Are we saying the, the budget came in around $8.5 Yes. I mean, $8.5 it's not chump change for sure, but it's pretty cheap to make this big of a movie. Yeah. And it's, I mean, when you think about indie filmmaking, you are thinking more like clerks, like someone just being able to make a movie. Well, yeah, I think a lot of that is just knowing it's the cinematography. It's knowing how to make it look cool. It's shooting on film because when you actually like examine every set in the movie and where everything is, you can buy it. I mean, it doesn't look. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they do a car crash. Yeah, the car crash is cool, but the most money was spent on creating Jackrabbit Slim. Uh, that's what, that exactly was like 150000 that, that has to be the most expensive. That and the, I think $5 million was like the actor's salaries. Oh, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, yeah, I mean. So, uh, other than the actor's salaries, creating Jackrabbit Slims, which is shocking that that's not a real place. <laughs> I wish I don't was. know why it isn't. Right. I mean, it looks it amazing. <laughs> Similarly to Reservoir Dogs, and a lot of his stuff since. I mean, the way that the characters talk about pop culture, they talk about day-to-day mundane things where they act like it's not I think people get lost. They when okay. they want to emulate his style, they're like, "All right, let's inject a bunch of pop culture bullshit in here." And so they think that that's the key to it. But I think the key to it is to make the characters talk like real people even when they're in unreal situations. Sure. So right away, you have Jules and Vincent, two mob hitmen guys, but they're just talking. Like, they're not talking about the people that they're going to go kill. Right, they're, they're not talking, talking about, about the job. They're talking about, yeah, well, they're talking about cheeseburgers in Paris, and then they're talking about foot massages. Sure. I mean, they're just talking, when you break well, that even down. Like the most slice of life piece of it later, I mean, a bit the thing that ends up happening to Vincent Vega, just like the idea of this mobster just like being on this stakeout or whatever, and he has to take a shit. <laughs> And that's like his demise, you know? Yeah. When you actually think about what they're talking about, it's like, well, this is how he was spending his time. He was in Amsterdam. This is what was going on in Amsterdam. And then it's like, what really is the whole story with Tony Rocky Horror and Mia and their boss, Marcellus? Oh, right, it's right. like, oh, it's just work drama. I mean, it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit heightened, obviously. Sure. It, it fits their wor- their criminal underground people, world. Yeah. 
but it's just gossip. According to Mia, later in the movie, it's not even true what they're which saying. Is fun. So- yeah, which certainly we can get into. Now, I was thinking this that you talked about it on the Dress to Kill episode, how Brian De Palma was referencing Hitchcock and like Hitchcock having his own genre. And he, when he made Dress to Kill, he was sort of operating in that genre. I do feel like you could say the same thing about Tarantino to a degree. It kind of feels like he has his own genre. Yeah. Certainly, it's recognizable in all his movies, and it's its own thing, and you can tell when people are trying to do it. Yeah. There's a charisma to it. There's the punchy dialogue. He's great at building suspense. Tarantino just has this way of melding a bunch of different shit together, but coming out with something completely new and original out of it. And Pulp Fiction, in a lot of ways, is his masterpiece. It's hard to say that he's ever done anything better. It's not my personal favorite of his films. That would right. be Jackie Brown. But Wow, giving that away already. Yeah, well, I think we probably mentioned it on the Jackie Brown episode. Sure. You can't go wrong with either I'm sure. of Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown. They're two undeniable films, but Jackie Brown is taken from an Elmore Leonard novel, whereas Pulp Fiction is just like, where did this come from? What is this? <laughs> it's just so crazy. The word fuck or some variation of it, is used 265 times in wow, the film. Wow, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's probably not the most, though. Right. What would be the most? Scarface? Yeah, what, or, or I don't know. Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, yeah, that's true. Now, a film we saw this year, I'm going to compare it to Pulp Fiction in a way that doesn't really make any sense. Hobbs and Shaw. No. You saw this movie. Okay, cool. So we saw the movie Book Smart this year. Wow. And... Right off the bat. I knew it. Pro- Olivia Wilde. <laughs> you're probably thinking, how does Next this make Tarantino. Any sense? No, this is a negative towards the Oh, film. no. This was my criticism of Booksmart, which is not a terrible film by any means, but it's just not that great either, in my opinion. It wasn't as funny as I was hoping it was going to be. Which is kind of my point. And you're like, well, wh- wh- where is this going? How are you comparing a comedy about girls in high school to Pulp Fiction? This Seriously, let's get to it. My biggest complaint about Booksmart was it doesn't have any moments that you really remember. Now, I'm sure there are people who love the movie and they're going to be like, well, what about this, this, and this? And it's like, well, I don't know. They weren't that great to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember them. You, you walk out of movies that are comparable to Booksmart, let's say like Superbad, Old School, Wedding Crashers, There's parts that 40 are Old Virgin. you're like quoting with your friends. Yeah, the big moments. The moments where the audience can't even believe this is happening. And that's very common in R-rated that's comedies. True. I don't really remember walking out of Booksmart and even having like a memorable line from it. Right. And so what does that have to do with Pulp Fiction? Well, Pulp Fiction is not really comparable to Booksmart. It's not really fair to Booksmart because it should be emulating super bad. It should not be emulating Pulp Fiction. But the thing with Pulp Fiction is it is the king of a movie where you're watching it, and I, I didn't get to see it in theaters when it was released. Obviously, it was 11, but <laughs> right, I could just imagine. I think you would have been probably traumatized based on people's reactions to things in other Tarantino. The whole movies. thing was Zed and Ving Rhames. Imagine when you're 11. Well, what I'm saying is the audience's reaction for three moments in particular have to just be off the charts, and it's like those moments grab you and hold you. And I think that movies that can string together really quality material in between huge moments leave this indelible impression on audiences and i think it's why pulp fiction was like instantly recognized as this huge deal people were like holy shit oh yeah and i mean you know people were i don't even think 
it got that reputation like right off the bat, like The Exorcist or Jaws or whatever, where people were like freaking out during the adrenaline shot scene. And then the second scene obviously is the gimp and the anal rape. <laughs> yeah, taking and it to a third level scene that you're just like, Holy you're just like, shit. I can't believe what's happening. Yeah. Is Marvin getting shot in the face out of nowhere? You're just like, wait, what the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. I hate to say the phrase, and I'm sure I'm going to repeat it a few times throughout right. this episode because of all the Game of Thrones bullshit, but like it's subverting expectations. You think you know where the story is headed, you know, and then it just keeps surprising you, and you can't ever get oh, a beat on it. Right, and what I was thinking, like I said, it, it just it keeps you on your toes. Now, when I was watching this the other day, I was thinking to myself, Tarantino, kind of now known for like, gratuitous violence and i'm sure he was at the time but when you go back and watch this now like compared to where he takes like some of his other movies later which i guess you could say seem more cartoony whereas the violence in this seems a little bit more real but it doesn't feel to me yeah i think our society has changed since this came out i think this is one of the things like movies like this led to a change in what you could see on like cable tv and now shows that are on amc would have like a comparable amount of violence to this Yeah. yeah But at the time, yeah, it was shocking. Okay, right. Especially uh, coming off of Reservoir Dogs, which had a lot of blood in it and a lot of gunshots in it and a guy getting his ear cut off and all that shit. Oh, yeah. And so this movie has violence in it. A lot of it is kind of off screen. There's a few big moments that are on screen. Right. But a lot of it, they, the camera does kind of cut or pull like away from the actual thing right as it's happening. Like the samurai sword. You don't actually like see it going in That's true. and shit like that. But yeah, I mean, I think in, at that time people were like, wow, this is a lot of violence. Oh, yeah. So let's talk really quickly about Roger Avery's contributions to the film, <laughs> which I don't think either of us are in a position to really know what exactly what is that truth? is. Yeah. Because I've seen I mean, so many different things. Well, as legend has it, right? I mean, the two of them had like this crazy original script that wasn't pulp fiction that they wrote together right that was like this crazy 800 page thing and supposedly the two of them each took things from it for different things that they worked on yeah it seems like it became like true romance natural born killers and killing zoe i don't know it's called open road i don't really know what all was involved with it pulp fiction was not necessarily involved with it although i do think elements of the gold watch segment were from Roger Avery's contributions to True Romance, which were not used in True Romance. Gotcha, yeah. And I could see Clarence and True Romance having the Gold Watch storyline going like on. Cl- yeah. He could have gone that, back sure. to deal with the gangsters and try to... I could see all of that being somewhere in there. Right. I don't know. I've seen a lot of different things. I've seen as little as Roger Avery wrote the Christopher Walken monologue about the Gold Watch. I don't think that's necessarily true because I haven't seen that recently. I've seen, well, he wrote a lot of the Gold Watch segment in general, like okay. all of it. I've seen, <laughs> he wrote the Bonnie situation. Okay. I've seen, he came up with a lot of the shit in the basement of the pawn shop, like the homage to Deliverance. Okay, yeah. Did he do all of those things? I don't think so because at that point it seems like you're getting more than a story by credit. Was he always supposed to get a story by credit, or was that like a legal thing? <laughs> I think he probably technically should have gotten a written by, and Quentin wanted to have written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Ah, I see. It seems to be the beginning of their falling out, I guess, was probably related to that. 
I know that Roger Avery is going to be on Brady Snellis' podcast this fall. I'm looking forward to hearing him talk. I haven't really heard an interview with him in that like long form, so well, I don't yeah, know I if they'll cover that'll it. That'll be an interesting one. How do you th- how crazy do you think that conversation will be? I don't know. I don't really know what he talks about or what he says. I know he went on to do like different shit. He wrote a couple of screenplays that weren't nearly as good as anything like this. Like, yeah, I know he wrote Beowulf, the thing with Angelina Jolie, but he also wrote like uh, one of those video game movies. It was like Silent Silent Hill, Hill or something. Yeah, yeah. I think he wrote that, and obviously he directed The Rules of Attraction, which we did on the show. Sure, which is a great movie based but, on a book by Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, it's based off of a book, and his movie Killing Zoe is very Tarantino s, starring Eric Stoltz, starring Stoltz. He had already filmed it before Pulp Fiction was completed because there was an interview with Stoltz on the set of Pulp Fiction in the bonus features, and he's talking about how Tarantino produced a movie he was in called Killing Zoe, which right. hadn't come out yet. So this was all happening around the same time. Is Killing Zoe as good as anything Tarantino's made? I mean, maybe it's better than, like, Death Proof or something, but it's not oh, wow. like... I- I'm higher <laughs> on Death Proof. I-, I like Death Proof. I don't know. I mean... I mean, well, I'm not saying that, that doesn't make it bad because I enjoyed Killing Zoe. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm just saying. Like, I don't think it's better than anything Tarantino's made. Yeah. I mean, it's so. The tale, I think, it becomes clearer as you see the, where their careers went. I mean, if Roger Avery was this huge contributor to Quentin's early work, then I think we would have seen more indication of that later. You would and it think. It just never really happened. That yeah. Way. I mean, where are his original scripts that are so great? Yeah, and his directorial work has been okay, but not anything nearly as interesting as what Quentin's done. Sure, and of I course, do always, <laughs> I wish I wish there was more there. He had you know some personal troubles right, that we're not going to get into, but unfortunately, which yeah. is unfortunate. But I mean, we talked about it on the Rules of Attraction episode. I mean, it does seem like maybe there could have been more there. I I don't know. It does well, seem I think like he was only in jail for like a year. No, I I know that. I just mean like it doesn't feel like his career ever. And well, he wasted the time making Glitterati, which is never released. released. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of weird things. I think he had a movie come out two years ago. It's a French name, so I don't even really know what it is. I've never seen it or really know anything about it. Yeah. I don't know, but I think it is at least worth mentioning that him and Quentin were friends. They were writing a lot of stuff together. A lot of his ideas made their way into Pulp Fiction in one way or another. I think he was around while it was being filmed. Okay. So the script might say like some generic thing about the gimp, but then like a lot of the ideas of what is going on in that basement may have been Roger Avery's ideas on the set or something. You know what I mean? I think he was like involved. He was even contributing during the making then. I think so. I think their okay. relationship was still going on during the making of the movie. And Avery did get an Oscar with oh, Tarantino. Yeah. I don't so think Tarantino he... won Best Original Screenplay for this movie? Yeah. Okay. But and it did not win Best Picture. No. Forrest Gump? Yes. Wow. It's weird, though, because they were nominated at other award ceremonies, and I don't think Avery was always included. It just depended on the award yeah, ceremony's that's, that's decision, I guess. that does seem kind of strange to me. I, I wouldn't think if a movie was nominated now in a similar situation, it just that seems odd to me that someone getting a story by credit would also get the Oscar. Yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like there was some sort of Maybe a negotiation a, that went on. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't know. really know. Maybe that's more typical. but It seems like they gave him 
I, I I know I read this in a book before. I don't remember what the exact details are, so maybe I shouldn't even speculate. But it seems like they talked him into it one way or another. Maybe they gave him money. I, I don't really know what exactly okay. went on. Yeah. But it seems like it kind of caused a little bit of a riff. I don't know if that's why they went their separate ways, either that or just Quint was on like a rocket at that point. Oh, well, yeah, that's doing his never own thing. really come down. Although, isn't there like a shocking amount of time between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill or not? No, there it's like six years. Yeah. Yeah. That seems kinda weird, doesn't it? It does, but I don't know. I think a lot of directors at various points in their career it doesn't always have to be that early into it, but I think a lot of them do tend to take a random break at different points. I, I mean, just look enjoy at David being O. Russell for a while. Oh, I know, that's true. And then all of a sudden he comes back and makes like a bunch right in the Now row. he hasn't made anything yeah, since tr- Yeah, that's uh, right. Whatever that was called. Shut up, Matt. Hope or <laughs> yeah. what was that called? Hope. Joy. <laughs> Joy, yeah. <laughs> Same thing. I was thinking glory. <laughs> Things religious people name their daughters. <laughs> okay, so the film... <laughs> glory? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's something completely different. Yeah. Okay, let's get into the movie itself. The film... <laughs> 45 minutes in? <laughs> yeah. The film opens with the definition of pulp. One, a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter makes you think of poor Marvin. True. Two... A magazine or book containing lurid subject matter and being characteristically printed on rough, unfinished paper. American Heritage Dictionary, New College Edition. That's something I never remember, and then it's there at the beginning of the movie. I never think of that as like the beginning of this movie. I always remember that they put the definition in. I didn't. I okay. never remember that. All right. <laughs> I, I guess I always remember that it's there, but I don't know. Is it quite really serving its purpose? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I do think, I mean, stylistically, it seems odd for Tarantino to explain anything because True. he would go on to do a lot of stuff where there's no really an explanation, like misspell bastards and all that shit for sure. that people don't really get. And that was just like his little artistic touch to things. But this seems more like if you're confused about where this title is coming right. from. This is what it is. This place, a coffee shop. What's wrong with that? Nobody ever robs restaurants. Why not? Bars, liquor stores, gas stations. You get your head blown off sticking up one of them. Restaurants, on the other hand, you catch with their pants down. They're not expecting to get robbed. Not as expecting anyway. I bet you could cut down on the hero factor in a place like this. Correct. Same as banks, these places are insured. Manager, (laughs) you don't give a fuck. He's just trying to get you out the door before you start plugging the diners. Waitress is fucking forgetting. No way they're taking a bullet for the register. Busboy, some wetback, getting paid $1.50 an hour. Really give a fuck you're stealing from the owner? Customers sitting there with food in their mouths. They don't know what's going on. One minute they're having a Denver omelette. Next minute someone's sticking a gun in their face. See, I got the idea. The last liquor store we stuck up, remember? All the customers kept coming in. Yeah. You got the idea, taking their wallets. Mm-hmm. Now that was a good idea. Thank you. Made more from the wallets than we did from the register. Yes, we did. A lot of people come to restaurants. A lot of wallets. Pretty smart, huh? Pretty smart. I'm ready. Let's do it right now, right here. Come on. All right. Same as last time, remember? <coughs> Your crowd control. I handle employees. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love you, pumpkin. I love you, honey bunny. 
Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! The movie opens with the part one, basically. It's the prologue. It's the diner. We have Honey Bunny, played by Amanda Plummer, and Pumpkin, played by Tim Roth. That's right. Tim Roth, also in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, a few just alums a, yeah. popping up in I, this one. Well, yeah, I guess that we kind of have the start of like what's now known as the crew. Yeah. Tim Roth, for sure, in it. This is way off. Well, not way off topic. But this is a little off topic for right at this moment, but it popped into my head. I'm surprised that Steve Buscemi has never done anything with him since. Like, pop back up again. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing after Pulp Fiction, right? Not that I recall. No. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it's weird. I would have thought there would have been a, uh, a more usage of him later. Yeah, you would think he would be like a Tarantino guy, especially yeah. uh, because of his early appearances. So, Quentin Tarantino wrote these two roles with these specific actors in mind. Obviously, he'd worked with Tim Roth. He was hanging out with Tim Roth at some movie premiere, and I think Tim Roth's date was Amanda Plummer, and he was like, you got to write something right. for both of us. I want her to be in it. I want her to hold a big gun. Wow. And so Quentin was like, okay. <laughs> I got it. Check. <laughs> You're immediately plunged into the rapid-fire back-and-forth dialogue. No time to get your bearings. You're forced to contend with the world of Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. I do love a good diner opening as well. Yes, similar to Reservoir Dogs, how yep. it opens. Yeah, They are a criminal couple looking to transition from robbing liquor stores, which they deem to be too dangerous, to now wanting to rob less protected restaurants, much like the one they're sitting in at that very moment. Tim Roth speaking at length about the ease of it. Yeah. Makes me think of the restaurant robbing scene in Spring Breakers. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided to go for it right then. I don't want to go through every single one or anything like that, but do you have a particular favorite Tarantino opening scene to, any, oh, wow. to one of his films? Boy, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have the answer to that. Probably, I, I think my favorite opening scene is in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, which is surprising because it's not necessarily like my favorite one of his films. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, yeah the opening scene of that is so you're it's so memorable. It's you so just long. Get the, the it's, tension. Yeah, you just are immediately you get it. It's you're so like, well I get done. What's happening yeah, yeah. Here. And you don't really know who any of these actors are at that time. I mean, like Leah Sidu is like one of the daughters, right, right, and you're yeah. like you've never seen her before. Christoph Waltz, you don't know who that is. You don't know who the yeah. I the just farmer I just is. watched it the other night actually, and I was thinking how just how great that opening scene is. After they pop up and tell everyone it's going to be a robbery Mr. Lou by Dick Dale plays over the beginning of the opening credits and the opening credits which is awesome by the way when this music kicks in really cool yeah absolutely and, and I mean he's always carried this on like this style yeah he has like his own fonts Font. like yeah. different fonts that he uses right even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot of the fonts were the same as like Jackie Brown and, and yeah, Pulp yeah. Fiction the way that they do like the yellow letters with like the red shading under them for Pulp Fiction but then the actors names come up in that white yeah the white looks awesome which is like a completely different font (laughs) I mean it's like really cool but even having under the opening credits having a radio dial being turned to transition to a different song and the credits still are going and then it becomes Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang you're like what I've (laughs) never seen anything like this right what is happening like these two songs just like set you to a vibe that 
paves the way for the movie. Yeah, and you almost think the Dick Dale song is like Vincent. Right. Right. And the Cool in the Gang is like That's true. Yeah. Jules, who actually uses Cool in the Gang as like a phrase later, okay. I believe, right? right? Uh, I think that's right, yeah. One year for Halloween, I went to a party as Samuel Jackson's character. and In blackface? Yeah, yeah. No, what, you know what's crazy about that? At the time, now this was like way pre-Trump, and I told people that I went as him, and actually like multiple people like seriously asked that. And I was just like so blown away that and I was like, "What year is this? 1930?" I mean, it seems more. It seems like the world's gotten a little crazier now than it was then. Yeah. But this was like you know in the midst of like the Obama era, where it just seemed like things were more normal than they are now. But I don't know. That that was crazy to me that people would have even thought that. Uh, but also at the party, there was a solo Vincent Vega and a solo Mia Wallace. Wow. Yeah, I I, I always think back like I should have gotten a picture of all three of us. But yeah, it feels like a missed uh, opportunity. Right. Okay. But yeah, we can move along. <laughs> so after the opening credits, we're in basically what amounts to part two, which is the prelude to Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. In case you were worried by the opening scene that Pulp Fiction was just going to be some rehash of Reservoir Dogs, this immediately takes you to a completely different place. These are characters that are not in that opening. Right. They're in a car. And they start talking about all this random shit. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, Reservoir Dogs opened with like a lot of talk about Madonna and like a virgin, but actually, it's kind of similar in the sense that Reservoir Dogs goes from a restaurant scene to a car scene. Yes. But the fact that you're seeing John Travolta and Samuel Jackson, who were not in the opening scene, I just think yeah, you, true. You understand right away that this is going to be a more for sure epic movie like it just it feels bigger almost immediately obviously it's weird being at the age that we're at and the, our, the age we were at when this movie came out i always associate john travolta with like being in this movie and that's like fine and normal but i'm thinking as the story goes this was kind of shocking to people that he was in this right i mean he kind of was yeah i do think that the narrative that his career was like completely in the toilet is a little overblown because he had just been coming off of look who's talking and look who's talking too which are artistically garbage but okay but huge movies right okay so it's not like he was unemployed yeah right. it just was like this was a supercharge into superstardom you know what i mean like this was like oh he's cool did people and i I guess i'm thinking i guess people probably just thought he was like silly at this like leading into it right yeah he had been in a lot of shit in the 80s that's for sure and it's not like his career was going great but he was still in stuff that people knew about it wasn't like he was totally obscure and obviously we'll get to the scene because it's so famous but i do just i love that he's cast in this and he is this mobster kind of badass dude that does heroin but they work a way into it where he's like an excellent dancer. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> by the way, we should we'll just point out that Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta, he is the brother of Vic Vega, who Michael Madsen played in Reservoir Dogs. That's right. Do you think we're still gonna get that Vega Brothers no, no, movie? No. He <laughs> he's already said that it's not gonna happen. Oh well, yeah. It was supposed to take place before both of these movies. For sure. And they're they're both so, so much old. older now. Yeah. But QT wanted Madsen for Pulp Fiction. This role was written for Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen was supposed to be this character. Wow. And it was probably just going to be Vic Vega. But Madsen, even though he was supposed to do this, had already committed to doing Wyatt Earp. Oh, wow. The Lawrence Kasdan Western with Kevin Costner. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it's, I was about to he say says Kevin that Hart. he's always regretted the decision. Well, yeah, I would, I would think so. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, Madsen is great in the Tarantino roles that he plays, and you know, obviously, he's done some other things. But again, he's he kind of lacks that charisma, you know, to be a real movie star. Yeah, I think he's at his absolute best in Reservoir Dogs as like a crazy, somewhat cool and yeah. charming looking sociopath right where he's almost a movie star you know you what don't i mean think like he's at his best in species i love species but no i mean <laughs> right <laughs> he's better in reservoir dogs yeah, yeah. i'm with you so jules winfield played by samuel L. jackson and vincent vega are on their way to an apartment essentially doing some early morning business for their boss crime yep. lord marcellus wallace it's always strange to think that they're doing this at like seven in the morning i know you are thinking like what a life dressed in suits yeah, I'm imagining that this is, they've been up all night. Like right. They work at night, and this is like their last thing okay, they're this, doing. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is, you're like, what, what are they, setting alarms at like five in the morning right. and getting know, up and yeah. getting in a suit? I don't know. Is the suits thing supposed to be a, a Reservoir Dogs nod at all, or is this just like, okay, let's just have these dudes wear suits? I need wear you suits. to face this one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It could be. I just think that he thinks that that's what looks Criminals cool. Criminals wear. <laughs> it just looks cool right, to have yeah. guys in suits. I'm with you. And him. There's some iconic dialogue, pop culture ramblings, mundane, day-to-day shit, which we've yeah, already talked try, about. Yeah, we'll try to avoid just going over like, oh, Yeah, we're going to be using a lot of clips here, people. Right, yeah. And then we don't <laughs> want to just do like, oh, I love this line because we could just be saying that and reciting the line. The right, whole right. Episode. I think the interesting thing here, though, is that it's just interesting when you put these words into the mouths of these badass gangsters. That's well, something that sure. that was yeah. the thing that you hadn't seen before. Right. It's like, like here's two guys going to kill someone, but they're going to talk about cheeseburgers and other bullshit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. You you touched on it earlier, but like with the the work gossip thing, but it is just like two guys on the job. Yeah. It's like it's no different than like two video rental clerks or whatever the hell <laughs> yeah. you want it to be. So, tell me again about the hash bar. Okay, what you want to know? That's just legal there, right? That's legal, but ain't 100% legal. I mean, you just can't walk into a restaurant, roll the joint, and start puffing away. I mean, they want you to smoke in your home or certain designated places. And those are hash marks. Yeah, it breaks down like this, okay? It's, it's legal to buy it. It's legal to own it. And if you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. It's legal to carry it, but but, but that doesn't matter because get a load of this, all right? If you get stopped by a cop in Amsterdam, it's illegal for them to search you. I mean, that's the right that cops in Amsterdam don't have. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm going. That's all it is to it. I'm fucking going. No, baby, you dig it the most. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's the little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a... a a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris. They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. I would say that if there's one thing about Pulp Fiction that I think he improved upon later in his career and is still even getting better at now, this late into it, it's that he does a better job of separating the characters. 
Whereas in Pulp Fiction, a lot of the characters talk like, like how same. you imagine he talks. Yeah, yeah. They all have his voice. Right. And I think he's gotten better at creating unique characters, even by Jackie Brown, oh, where the sure. characters are very unique feeling. Oh, yeah. I would say it's especially apparent in, in Glorious Bastards. I mean, there's like worlds apart. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Inglorious Bastards. It's kind of unbelievable when you go back and look at it, considering only like 30% of it is in English. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> and he can't speak those other languages, really. Right. <laughs> so he somehow directed this movie with all these people talking different languages. Yeah, yeah. Like anyway. I said, third most Italian. Okay, so they eventually transition from cheeseburgers and all that stuff into a story about a guy named Antoine, who they refer to as Tony Rocky Horror. Oh, true. And how their boss, Marcellus Wallace, threw him out of a four-story window through like a glass-enclosed garden because he supposedly gave Marcellus's wife, Mia, a foot massage. Right. Which leads into a whole foot massage discussion. Yeah, yeah, and how intimate that is, which I do think they're each making kind of good points here. But the idea that Jules is not considering this an intimate thing is crazy to me. They're both kind of right, but they're also both kind of wrong. I agree with that, yeah. Because it is a crazy reaction. For sure. But Vincent at one point says it's in the same ballpark as eating her out. Right, which which is is not. Which is insane. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it is definitely line crossing. For sure. Yeah. You remember Antoine Rockamora? Half black, half Samoan. Used to call him Tony Rocky Howard. Yeah, maybe fat, right? I wouldn't go so far as to call the brother fat. I mean, he got a weight problem. What's the nigga going to do? He's Samoan. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. What about him? Well, Marcellus fucked him up good. Word around the campfire is it was on account of Marcellus Wallace's wife. So what'd he do, fucker? No, 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 no. Nothing that bad. Well, then what then? Gave her a foot massage. Foot massage? That's it? Mm-hmm. Then what Marcellus do? Sent a couple of cats over to his place. They took him out on his patio, threw his ass over the balcony. Nigga fell four stories. Had a little garden down at the bottom, closed in glass like a greenhouse. Nigga fell through that. Since then, he kind of developed a speech impediment. That's a damn shame. But still, I have to say, you play with matches, you get burned. What do you mean? You don't be giving Marcellus Wallace's new bride a foot massage. You don't think he overreacted? Well, yeah, so I probably didn't expect Marcellus to react the way he did, but he had to expect a reaction. It was a foot massage. A foot massage is nothing. I give my mother a foot massage. No, it's laying your hands in a familiar way on Marcellus's new wife. I mean, is it as bad as eating her pussy out? No. It was the same fucking ballpark. Whoa, 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 stop right there. I mean, eating a bitch out and giving the bitch a foot massage ain't eating the same fucking thing. It's not. It's the same ballpark. Ain't no fucking ballpark, neither. Now, look, maybe your method of massage differs from mine, but, you know, touching his wife's feet and sticking your tongue in the holiest of holies ain't the same fucking ballpark. It ain't the same league. It ain't even the same fucking sport. Look, foot massages don't mean shit. Have you ever given a foot massage? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be telling me about foot massages. I'm the foot fucking master. You giving a lot of them? Shit, yeah. Got my technique down and everything. I don't be tickling or nothing. Would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. <laughs> you give him a lot? Fuck you. You know, I'm kind of tired. I can use a foot massage myself. Yo, 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 man. You best back off. I'm getting a little pissed here. This is the door. Yeah, it is. 
time you got? 7.22 in the a.m. No, ain't quite time yet. Come on, let's hang back. Now look, just because I wouldn't get no man a foot massage, don't make it right for myself to throw Antoine off a building into a glass motherfucking house fucking up the way the nigga talks. That shit ain't right. Motherfucker do that shit to me. He better paralyze my ass because I kill a motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? I ain't saying it's right. But you saying a foot massage don't mean nothing. I'm saying it does. And look, I've given a million ladies a million foot massages, and they all meant something. We act like they don't, but they do. I mean, that's what's so fucking cool about them. There's a sensuous thing going on where, where you know, you don't talk about it, but you know it, she knows it. Fucking Marcellus knew it. And Antoine should have fucking better known better. I mean, that's his fucking wife, man. They think they have no sense of humor about this shit. You know what I'm saying? It's an interesting point. Come on, let's get in character. But this all leads into Vincent's revelation, which is he has to take Mia out. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think Quentin, in some of the behind-the-scenes interviews, like during the making of and all that shit, he was talking about, like, he wanted to take conventional crime story ideas and turn them on their head and make them go in directions you're not expecting. And he kept acting like we, he keeps saying like, you've seen it a million times taking the big man's wife out on the town. And I'm like, you've seen it a million times (laughs) because you've seen a lot of these movies that no one else has seen. I'm like, I don't really feel like that's that common. of a No, I don't think so. I I mean, and I get that it's like not the most, it's not like it's completely original. I, I get the idea. Sure. But like he's acting I don't like think it's in it every other as a movie. normal thing. I mean, can you imagine this happening in your life ever? Like, uh, forget the criminal element. I, I just can't imagine any scenario where any dude. It's a throwback to a completely another time. Yeah, it's not even something that happened in like the nineties. I For mean, sure. this is like a throwback to like the fifties. Yeah, like a, a time when there would be like kind of a sexist idea of like, well, you can't leave her by herself because she's not safe this is just plus like there's a, nothing to do right because people there weren't a, any tv channels you know there was just like she in other words and she was a single woman at that point like she'd be by herself so like she can't go out by herself yeah yeah. like that kind of like old school sexist thinking i know it it does seem but in 94 crazy. yeah i mean you're just like yeah i, I don't really i'm not buying it this. seems crazy right. and it seems crazy that Marcellus from, would be down for this. Yeah, like it would be his idea and he would be wanting this to happen. And also from Vincent's perspective of like, what? <laughs> like, what do I have to do? Because <laughs> even like Jules's reaction is to be like, take her out. And he like puts, you know, the finger gun to his head. Yeah. Like, you mean kill her? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> he, like, he doesn't even know what he means. It's like, no, I got to just show her a good time. Good company. And that, again, feels like a throwback to another era. Right. When people were forced to be more sociable because there was less to do yeah it is nuts i I just i I don't know if i was marcellus i would probably not be picking a john travolta looking henchman to take my wife out yeah but i mean if you're like that bad of a dude i mean i don't really think you're worried about a bad dude and he trusts his wife i guess i don't know who seems maybe not so trustworthy at times They definitely, like, play with the expectations, like I'm saying, which is the whole thing of the movie. Like, you definitely feel like it's going one way, and then it just takes it in such a different direction. It's a brick wall. It's really, like, a strange apartment building, by the way, that they go into. It has that kind of a big lobby room that they walk through that has, like, couches in it. 
That's it's true. unoccupied. It's you just know seems- what I was thinking too, watching this. It's like, and it's maybe just of the time, but like, I, I don't think it's just that easy to walk into any apartment building now. Yeah. There's like no doorman right. or anything, but yeah. it's a big room. You don't no special key card or as if there would anything. be yeah. a, a door guy, right? Because it's like, why is there this big lobby to this place? This building because the Pretty apartment just is like shitty. Easy access, and so then they go to this like weird old school elevator again. Doesn't match the actual apartments because the apartment, like I said, is shitty for sure. And yet there's elevators. There's like a big room. I don't know. It's like an old school building that, I mean, I'm not like an expert on like what architectures and what cities, but it seems like something that you would only find in LA, like a building like that. Yeah, I guess. It reminds me of some of the shooting locations of like Blade Runner or something. Okay, yeah. Not done up in all of the futuristic look, but just these weird, I keep wanting to say lobby, but it's like a a foyer or something. (laughs) I don't know. It's just some big room at the beginning and it's just like, what is this room? They're going to this guy named Brett's apartment, and inside the apartment is Brett, his friend that they refer to as Flock of Seagulls on the couch, and <laughs> Marvin, this yeah. other guy, who was briefly mentioned as like their guy. So they, they know Marvin. Marvin is like with Jules and Vincent in some way, which is okay. never explained. The purpose of Jules and Vincent's visits is to retrieve a briefcase that belongs to Marcellus. The contents right. of this briefcase... Never will remain unknown to the viewer. Now, do you ever care about what's in the briefcase? I know it's like a big thing not. that people talk about. People have all these crazy theories. I don't. In controversial statement, I also don't really care. It never, like, I never get to the end of the movie and I'm like, what was in the briefcase? I, like, yeah, it, it's never bothered me. It's, it's like never even given Certainly me. Certainly never bothered me. Yeah, I've never really thought about it much. Although I will say that. For people who have listened to the show, they know that after the closing song, there's a closing clip. Yes. I will put a little clip at the end of this episode that gives a pretty interesting theory about it, just for fun. Okay. I don't care, and I don't buy into the any of these weird theories. The clip is a theory theories. that you recorded yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's just more of me talking. Right. People are like, oh, it's Marcellus Wallace's soul because he has that Band-Aid on the back of his head, and it's like That's you, fucking you retrieve the soul through the back <laughs> of the head and all this shit. I mean, come on. Yeah. Who knows? In an otherwise grounded movie, why have something like that? In the original idea, it was supposed to be the diamonds and quite possibly the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. And then they realized that diamonds seemed too mundane and it was better just to not show anything. That way the viewer would make up whatever they wanted. Right. When Quentin was on Howard Stern in like 2003 or something, a listener called up and asked the question and he was like, it's whatever you want it to be as the viewer. Which is like kind of a bullshit throwaway answer, sure. but I mean, I think that that's sufficient. Unless you're one of those people that wants it to be Marcellus Wiley's soul, <laughs> then you can never watch this movie again or see any of my other yeah, movies. The reason he has a bandaid on the back of his head was he legitimately cut himself shaving his head. <laughs> and so he just put a bandaid there and then they were like, oh, that kind of looks interesting for the character. Right. There was no secret meaning to it. Anyway, not only do the contents of this briefcase remain unknown, so do the details of this double cross of these random guys that well, don't I seem mean, like they would guys, ever be I know, in that's league with Marcellus. Like, first of all, they seem like they're in college. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, they're just nerds. Right. And like, what deal would they have facilitated with Marcellus Wiley? Now, Frank Whaley plays Brett, who was in Field of Dreams, I think, okay. right? And like a lot of other shit. Yeah. And I don't know. Frank Whaley might not be a household name for me. You know his face, though, right? Sure. I mean, you've seen that guy in other movies. Yeah, I think maybe Field of Dreams and maybe <laughs> some other movies. 
He's been in a lot of stuff. I mean, okay. he was around for like a while. He yeah. just met Tarantino at Sundance when Tarantino was working on Reservoir Dogs in the Sundance Labs, and Tarantino just liked him. They were friends. Okay. And he was like, hey, do you want to be in this new movie? I think it's cool that guys like Frank Whaley play associates of Marcellus Wallace or Tarantino himself ends up playing Jimmy. And you're looking at these people and you're like, they don't look like they fit into this world. Well, that's true. And it adds a weird dynamic to it where you're just like, okay. Yeah, we're like just normal everyday people are part of this as are well. Are caught up in yeah. you know, whatever. You don't have to look as cool. As Samuel Jackson or John Travolta in a suit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Reciting verses from the Bible. Kind of, because it's not really a verse from the Bible. That's true. (laughs) They just, like, made it up. (laughs) There's parts of it that are real. This passage. A lot of it seems like it came from some Sonny Chiba thing. Oh, wow. Some of it came from that, some of it came from the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. This scene is awesome because of Samuel Jackson, of course, but it's also cool just because at this point, you're watching this movie, and you're like, what is this movie? You're all over the place. You don't know what's going on. They're talking about foot massages. You kind of already have forgotten about Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. And then all of a sudden, it just turns on a dime to this extraordinary violence. And one thing that is recurring throughout the movie is people's almost non-reaction to the violence. The violence is like never that big of a deal in the movie. People are just kind of like, oh, this happened, and then move on very quickly. Oh, I know, and it's like, I mean, there's not even really a sense of urgency to get out of there. No. there's and Police I, do not exist right, in this exactly, movie. Right, exactly, yes, okay. And the closest thing to the police that you see in the movie is the security guard who ends up being a real monster. <laughs> oh, that's true, yes. So yeah, the Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen thing has kind of followed Samuel Jackson around even into like Captain America Winter Soldier or whatever one of those oh, yeah. movies where on his like grave Nick Fury's grave they have Ezekiel 2517 oh, the, the righteous that. man or whatever yeah. <laughs> that's awesome I mean obviously unbelievable delivery here always memorable yeah they were gonna give this role to Samuel Jackson as I said Tarantino wrote it for him and it's one of those things where he thinks he has the role. He comes in and he, he thinks he's doing a read through. Some of the producers, some people are getting like cold feet. They're like, well, what is he doing? He's not really doing the part. He thinks he's already got it and he's not auditioning. Okay, yeah. So then they're like, we want to see other people. They came very close to giving this role to Paul Calderon, who plays the bartender Paul in the movie. Oh, yeah, right. He was like almost having the role and like, Samuel Jackson's agent was like, dude, what are you doing? You got to go and do this. And so then he goes back and he does this audition that blows everyone away. And they're like, yeah, this is definitely who we want. Oh, yeah. It was that second time that he comes in and auditions for real where he does like the end of the movie, like that thing with Tim Roth, that scene. That's when they realize like that's how they need to end the movie is right then. Because they weren't really even sure how they were going to end it at that point. And they're like, yeah, this is the end right there. Right. Samuel Jackson's awesome in this movie. He was nominated for an Oscar. He didn't win. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, I believe. Well, who is the lead actor in this movie? I think they went with Travolta because he's in every... The the most scenes? Part of it. Okay. But I don't know if he necessarily has the most lines or not. I don't really know. Yeah. So they kill Flock of Seagulls. They end up killing Brett after all that. Fade to black. We come up on the next part of the film, which is... Technically, I would say part three, Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. We get the title card, which Tarantino loves to use. Yeah, (laughs) It's definitely still a thing that he does. Absolutely. Chapter whatever. 
Let's Stay Together by Al Green is playing. Yep. I noticed that too. Marcellus giving a speech while bribing Butch, played by Bruce Willis, to take a dive in an upcoming fight. This is where you see the back of Marcellus's head. He has the band-aid. Yeah. What's that sting? Pride. Fucking with you. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you know who they originally offered the part of Marcellus to? I do not. This is going to blow your mind. Whoa. Sid Haig. Holy shit. <laughs> How terrible would yeah, that have been? I can see the studio being down on that. Sid Haig supposedly turned it down. Wow. Meanwhile, Ving Rhames went on to book Mission Impossible, Con Air, and Out of Sight, basically on the strength of his performance in this movie. Wow. He basically became a movie star because of this. Yeah, I can't believe that Sid Haig turned down this role. I was trying to rack my brain as to why that might be. And, I mean, I was thinking, like, was he just not down with, <laughs> you know, the basement of the pawn shop? Oh, uh, that's true. Was I he just, like, that. not yeah. into that at all? I mean, he's like an old guy. I know, but it's just like, this is like a pretty, I mean, it's a movie role in an $8.5 million movie. I mean. What was he getting in 94 oh, that made him, t- exactly. who knows? Yeah, this right. is just Wikipedia That's shit. That's true, yeah. Who so knows what the actual story yeah. is. It may have been someone that Tarantino wanted or something, but there may not have ever been an offer. I mean, who yeah. knows? Plus, I mean, he's kind of a s- scary looking dude, like not in like an intimidating way, <laughs> like kind of a gross out way. I don't know. I think Ving Rhames works here. Yeah, he's awesome in this. Bruce Willis was by far the biggest star in the movie at the time, but was on a streak of box office disappointments at that point. And so he gambled on this low budget indie. He took like in way less money. Striking than he distance did. era or Yeah. Okay. I that may have actually I don't know if that was the year before or the year after. Right. I don't really know. But this paid off for him huge. Because it revived his career, and he was able to go back to asking for like the big money again. But like I said earlier, it also helped Miramax tremendously because oh, it, for sure. they got the $11 million in foreign rights, ensuring the project would be profitable no matter what. I've always heard that Tarantino was talked into having Bruce Willis in this part, but I never see any other names, so I don't know if who else was in consideration Who he had this. in mind? This was originally Eric Stoltz. <laughs> Vincent and Jules arrive at this place, this bar, where Marcellus is talking to Butch, and they're wearing completely ridiculous clothes. Which, at this point, you're just like, what the fuck? What's happened? How much time's passed? Why are they wearing these different clothes? It's like shorts and t-shirts. They cross paths with Butch briefly. You don't really see Jules in this moment, but Vincent and Butch, there's like all this tension there. He calls him Palooka, and so I was like... What does that mean in this context? I'm like looking it up. And Palooka, I think in this sense, he's referring to a fighter who isn't any good or takes dives. And then he calls him punchy as well. This leads to two things. Yeah. The first being the king of Vincent's car, which Vincent talks about later in the film. For sure. It's a horrific act. Tarantino confirmed that it is Butch. And this is the moment that causes it. But the second thing is I think that Vincent saying that shit to him and the way that Butch reacts to it is a huge factor in Butch's eventual decision to not throw the fight. Oh, you think so? I don't know. I I think if you pay attention to all these little different nuggets throughout the movie, they all kind of connect to different things. Okay. And lead to like I can follow this. Like a cause and effect. There's always like little causes to why different things happen. And it seems like this potentially could be the motivation for Butch to not want to do this. 
I mean, there's no proof either way. It's just got some good proof here. I can buy it. Next, Vincent is buying heroin from Lance, played by Eric Stoltz. Yes. (laughs) I love Stoltz. (laughs) I do, too. And I think he's fucking great in this movie. Yeah, he's hilarious. Tarantino considered playing Lance and ended up playing Jimmy instead. That's the absolute right choice. Eric Stoltz, unbelievable as Lance for me. Yeah, I think a big reason was because Tarantino wanted to be behind the camera for the adrenaline shot scene that comes later. Oh, yeah. And if he was playing Lance, he would not be behind the camera for that. But, yeah, getting Stoltz to be this part is awesome. This is Panda from Mexico. Very good stuff. And that's Bava. Different, but equally good. And that is Choco from the Harz Mountains of Germany. Now, the first two are the same. 300 a gram. Those are friend prices. But this one is a little more expensive. This is 500 a gram. But when you shoot it, you will know where that extra money went. Now, there's nothing wrong with these. This is real, real, real good shit. But this one is a fucking madman. Remember, I just got back from Amsterdam. Am I a nigger? Are we in Inglewood? No. You were in my home. Now, white people who know the difference between good shit and bad shit, this is the house they come to. Now, my shit, I'll take the Pepsi challenge with that Amsterdam shit any old day of the fucking week. That's a bold statement. <laughs> this ain't Amsterdam, Vince. This is a seller's market. Coke is fucking dead as... dead. Heroin is coming back in a big fucking way. All right. Give me three grand, man. Okay. If it's as good as you say it is, I'll come back and buy another thousand. I just hope that I still have some left for you. But I'm giving you some out of my own private stash. That is what a nice guy I am. And I'm out of balloons. Is a baggie all right? Yeah, that's cool. All right, just get one for you. Honey, will you get me some baggies and uh, Twistix from the kitchen? Hey. Hey, uh, what do you think about Trudy? She ain't got a boyfriend. You want to uh, hang out, get high? Which one's Trudy? One with all the shit in her face? No, that's Jody. That's my wife. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Thank you. <laughs> no, I can't. I'm, I gotta be someplace. All right, no problem. I'll take a rain check. Oh. Thank you, Jody. Still got your Malibu? Man, you know what some fucker did the other day? What? Fucking keyed it. Oh, man. That's fucked up. Tell me about it. I had it in storage for three years. It was out five days, and some dickless piece of shit fucked with it. They should be fucking killed, man. No trial, no jury, straight to execution. Boy, I wish I could have caught him doing it. I'd have given anything to catch that asshole doing it. It'd have been worth him doing it, just so I could have caught him doing it. What a fucker. What's more chicken shit than fucking with a man's automobile? I mean, don't fuck with another man's vehicle. You don't do it. It's just against the rules. Thank you. Thank you. Mind if I shoot up here? Hey, mi casa, su casa. Muchas gracias. I don't know. Just a really underrated, underappreciated actor. I think. Well, I mean, he's one of those guys that just has, like, a distinct look and a distinct voice, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's hard to see him as a lot of different roles and take him seriously. <laughs> well, he's somebody that, like, it, you you have a hard time 
building a movie around him. Like for he, sure. it's hard for him to be the lead, which I think they found out with Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that's still a sore subject for him. So, but he's a great character actor, and for this sure. is probably his defining appearance right. for sure. I know, I love it. Everything you know, about it's hilarious. His interactions with Jody, played by Rosanna Arquette, his wife, are hilarious. Sure. They're fighting the entire time. Even though, like, I love the rapport he has with Vincent and, and where their relationship goes as we lead to the adrenaline scene. These are friend prices. For sure. Tapping him on the shoulder. Right. These are friend prices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, like, that drug dealer bullshit that is just, like, so lame. But For sure. It, when it's between Stoltz and Travolta, it's hilarious for some reason. Yeah, well, it's like this is the sad part of this lifestyle. It's just like you don't really have any friends. You've got your colleagues, other hitmen, and you've got drug dealers. <laughs> Those are the people you're tight with. So Tarantino had them all rehearse for a while. I think he actually wanted Rosanna Arquette and Eric Stoltz to like literally stay at that house for like a couple of days and just practice being these people bickering just coming up with shit to say to each other always talking always fighting always in that way when it built up into that scene later they're just yelling shit at each other and it's like very chaotic (laughs) feeling now i guess pam greer read for jody oh wow and even though quentin loves pam and would cast her in jackie brown yeah he was like people aren't gonna buy Lance yelling at Pam Greer. She'd beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah, people were just like, they're not going to buy that. Yeah. I would have bought Pam Greer as more of a Bonnie. Yeah, well, that scene, I think, was improvised. Okay. they That wasn't even in the script. I think that was something the three of them or four of them came up with. All right, yeah. They're like, wouldn't it be funny to show like us in the kitchen when Bonnie comes in? They're like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And so then they just like, I don't think they cast <laughs> anyone special part. for that. Yeah. yeah, I think Roseanne Arquette read for Mia. Oh, okay. And then Quentin offered her Jody. Trudy is just another chick hanging around who's there all the time when they're in this house and doesn't really ever say anything. Well, these are the Lance house scenes definitely have that Tarantino hangout vibe. Yeah, he's like, anytime you go to buy drugs or anything, there's always people just like hanging there and you don't know who they are and they just don't really say anything. For sure. There's always people around. Yeah. And he also thought it would be funny to have her just like there witnessing the adrenaline shot later in the movie right right and just being like this spectator to that and just (laughs) being like what the fuck is happening vincent buys his heroin from lance he goes for the fucking madman as lance calls it like this crazy shit or whatever and the big thing here that you have to take away is lance is out of balloons so he gives him the heroin and baggies now what does that mean well typically Coke would be in a baggie and heroin would be in a balloon. So you don't which, mix the two. To differentiate right, exactly, which is yeah. which. And I was always <laughs> two experts on this subject, by the way. I was always like confused <laughs> Us two idiots. as to exactly what we're supposed to make of Mia's overdose later. And I, I believe my original idea was right, which is that she thinks that it's Coke. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean I think the I've the, never, the other argument would be that she's just she does it's the fucking madman so she doesn't know that it's that strong well i think but yeah the confusion that, that's just furthering it that like, yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's heroin it's way too powerful anyway and it's like crazy heroin so it sends into her into like an immediate overdose yeah and she has no idea because right. like that's the whole point of showing her doing coke earlier yeah. in jackrabbit slims 
I always think it's hilarious when Lance is like, well, do you want to hang out with Trudy? She doesn't have a boyfriend. And Vincent's like, which one is Trudy? The one with all the shit in her face. He's like, no, that's my wife. <laughs> I think that's funny every yeah, time. I agree it's with that. so right. funny. Because then they both look at each other and then just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I will say John Travolta is pretty terrible as a guy on heroin. I mean, he doesn't really act like it at all. Yeah. He's just making a weird face when he's driving. He's not really doing anything. Yeah, I, I, that whole sequence for me where they actually show him shoot up. But yeah, well, you only see like the close up on like the you know, all the heroin works and all that stuff. You don't actually right. even see him doing. Well, it. that's true. Yeah. And then he's just like driving in a car and then you're relying on the weird visuals out the car window and the music to convey the fact that he's on heroin because then by the time he gets to Mia's, he's not really acting like oh for sure anything specific. Heroin just doesn't feel like a drug that you could drive on or go out on a date. Oh, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> and be normal. But I've I mean, seen The Sopranos. I mean, Christopher was nodding off in like a minute. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is like post the initial nod off. That's I don't true. Know. Yeah, he pulled it's over in the parking lot. So the next scene is Vincent You're picking like, up. Oh, Vincent's nodding again. It's <laughs> like crashing the car. Yeah. The next scene is Vincent picking up Mia, played by Uma Thurman, who Quentin wanted for this part. There was a million other people in play for it, including, like, I guess Jennifer Anderson was, like, really close to getting it. Wow. A few other people. He really wanted it to be Uma Thurman. He was, like, offering it to her. She initially turns it down. He's, like, calling her, begging her to do it, reading her the script over the phone. <laughs> He's like, I, I mean... I- it's just like, just throw out, you got Jennifer Aniston in the mix. He heard that she had huge feet, <laughs> which she does for a woman. Her feet are pretty big. Wow. So this scene starts with Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. The soundtrack is awesome. And Absolutely. It was like Without one of those question. things where the soundtrack goes into like the top charts, the uh, urge overkill cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, which we haven't even got to that scene yet. That uh-huh. enters the charts. Everyone's driving around listening to this soundtrack. It was a huge CD at the time. Right. I love that kind of shit, and I wish that kind of stuff still happened. I guess it does, but only for, like, Disney musicals or, or shit like well, that. Well, I, I do think it happens with cult movies to a degree. I mean, obviously, they don't go this mainstream. Yeah, I want it to, like, permeate the culture. Right. Like, yeah, I mean. This summer, I've been driving happen. around listening to fucking songs from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I want right. there to be other people doing it. I that. mean, obviously, like, the small-scale version of it is, like, a movie like Drive. Yeah. You know, where there's a certain population that that's hitting and everyone's <laughs> I feel like it. you're looking at me too hard when you're saying <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, you know, when you bought your scorpion jacket. <laughs> this is the scene, obviously, now where he's to take his boss's wife out for a night out and do whatever she wants. So she wants to go to this place called Jack Rabbit Slims. One thing about this, when they're trying to portray, like, wealth in the 90s is the idea of having, like, an intercom system in the house. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, It just doesn't seem like that's Everything would- about... Mia and Marcellus's house is strange. It's shocking that Marcellus is this rich. Like, this is pretty rich. I, yeah, I guess, but you don't really see much, do you? It looks, it feels like a big house, I guess. You don't <laughs> see much, but it implies more to me. I, I guess the intercom system. I was buying it. Well, later the wolf will say your uncle Marcellus is a millionaire. That's true. To Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> so they go to this place. I love Vincent's description of it, a wax museum with a pulse. I'm not sure if he's being derogatory there, but I feel like that's actually a pretty accurate thing. Oh, well, I do think he's being derogatory, but I think it is. I don't know. He kind of smiles, though, like okay. in in a not mean way. I don't know. I was getting the vibe, though, that he's just like, this place is fucking cheesy. At first, before they go in, but I feel like once they're in, he, he he's buying he's, it. He's kind of yeah. sucked into it. 
that ain't Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. He knows all the different people. Yeah. I was like really fascinated by all the huge movie posters that kind of are around in the background. I mean, your eyes are drawn to like the people playing James Dean or Richard Nixon or Marilyn Monroe or oh, without the race question, car track. The first time I ever saw this movie, uh, immediately when we get to the scene, I'm just like looking it up because I thought it was a real place. And yeah. like how bad I wanted to go here. Yeah, I was legitimately disappointed that it wasn't real. Right. But once you get past all the flashy things, you, I, I was paying attention great, to all like, the posters. How they do the you know pop-up restaurants or whatever. Well, I think a lot of pe- places have taken this name now. Oh, really? Because of this movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's places called this now. Sure, but I mean, like, to actually just, yeah, you know, replicate this for, like, a short period of time. I don't know why they haven't. I mean, who's to say? I mean, it could have happened at some point. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, because we, we're right. on the cutting edge. We know what's going on everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, there's, like, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and all these other crazy movies. And yeah. I was, like, actually looking them up on IMDb whenever I was watching this for this. And I'm like, what are these movies? There's one called, like, Sorority Girl, which the poster was, like, incredible. And I was like, what is this? And it's, like, some Roger Corman movie from, like, 1956. Oh, wow. And it's, like, an hour long. And Dick Miller is in it, who was <laughs> okay. cut from this movie, right. which is a later part. but Which whatever. is a guy you would recognize. I think like the, one of the coolest parts of this section is the effortless chemistry between Thurman and Travolta. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Whatever it is, there's a spark here between the two. And they uh, they play it out perfectly, like sort of like the flirtation, the nervousness. Yes. Are we going to cross a line here? There's definitely like an adult quality to this that seems more mature than a lot of other things that Tarantino was writing at this point. Right. And that might just be the strength of the two people delivering the lines i don't know might be how it's edited and combination of all those things who knows travolta does it well with sort of his change in demeanor because i feel like he starts off sort of dismissive sort of nonchalant laid back like i'm not really gonna care or indulge in this too much and as they lead up to like doing the dance sequence like once he does the dance you're just like all right anything's on the table now (laughs) that's the way i feel so do you think of something to say Actually, I did. However, you seem like a really nice person, and I I don't want to offend you. This doesn't sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting-to-know-you chit-chat. This sounds like you actually have something to say. Well, well, I do. I do. But you have to promise not to be offended. No, no, no. You can't promise something like that. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me. And my natural response could be to get offended. Then through no fault of my own, I would have broken my promise. Let's just forget it. That's an impossibility. Trying to forget anything as intriguing as this would be an exercise in futility. Is that a fact? Besides, isn't it more uh, exciting when you don't have permission? All right, all right. Well, here goes. What did you uh, think about what happened to Antoine? Who's Antoine? Tony Rocky Horror. You know him. Fell out of a window. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that is one way to say it. Another way to say it would be that he was thrown out. Another way would be was he was thrown out by Marcellus. And yet even another way is to say he was thrown out of a window by Marcellus because of you. Is that a fact? No, no, it's not a fact. It's just what I heard. It's just what I heard. Who told you? 
They? They talk a lot, don't they? <laughs> they certainly do. They certainly do. Don't be shy, Vincent. What else do they say? Well, I'm not, I'm not shy. Um, Did it involve the F word? No, 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 no. They just said that Antoine had given you a foot massage. And? And, no, and nothing. That's it. You heard Marsalis through Tony Rocky Hard a four-story window for giving me a foot massage? Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, I mean, at the time I was told it sounded reasonable. Marsalis throwing Tony out of a four-story window for massaging my feet seemed reasonable? No, it seemed excessive, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, I understand that Marsalis is very, very protective of you. A husband being protective of his wife is one thing. Husband almost killing another man for touching his wife's feet is something else. But did it happen? Only thing Antoine ever touched in mine was my hand when he shook it. At my wedding. Really? Truth is, nobody knows why Marsalis threw Tony out of that four-story window except Marsalis and Tony. When you little scamps get together, you're worse than a sewing circle. Their waiter is Buddy Holly, played yep. by Steve Buscemi, who had been in Reservoir Dogs. Now, originally, Tarantino wanted Buscemi for Jimmy, but he couldn't commit to it because of other obligations he was already oh, signed okay. up for. Well, that's definitely a role Buscemi could have done. I almost am picturing it now and probably better than Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino loves to put himself in the movies. I mean, he didn't do it for in sure. all of them, but... Even as recently as I, Django, he was showing up, and right. you're kind of like, eh. I'm not against it. It does always stand out. It should be smaller than it is for in sure. Django, for sure. Where yeah, you're yeah. like, how long is this part? Well, isn't he doing like an Australian yeah. accent or something in Django? Yeah. yeah. It's not great. And I think it would have been better if it would have been anybody but him being Jimmy, just because of the things that Jimmy says, which have kind of haunted him a little bit. So, yeah, the dance contest... They do the twist. Some people were saying it was heavily influenced by some dance scenes in Eight and a Half, the Fellini film. Okay. But I think Travolta Chayonan brought a criterion. lot to it. Yeah. Because Travolta knew all these different things, like the Batman and the Hitchhiker and all this stuff. And I'm so like, Tarantino you, was just yelling out different things for them to do based I, on a Travolta bringing that to the the The, the framing scene. of the shot is really cool when they start to do the dancing. Yeah, because you see their whole bodies. Yeah, yeah. And when Travolta kicks into it, it's just like, holy shit, is this guy a fucking dancer? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> when he does that thing where he gets like up on his toes. Oh, you're right. Just like, Jesus. It's so unexpected for this like gangster character. Yeah, that's another thing. Like another misconception, similarly to how bad his career was at the time, that people think was also that like he hadn't danced since the movies he had been famous for dancing, but that's not really true either. I mean, he had danced and other shit, but this was the thing that made it cool again. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like everything was, this was like erasing the weird shitty stuff that people didn't want to acknowledge. These dance moves, there is without question a silliness to them, but it somehow works in this in such a cool way. Yeah. Because there's a confidence to it. And you know that in the context of the song, you never can't tell by Chuck Berry. And the diner that they're at right which is celebrating uh the 50s and 60s and whatnot that those dance moves were cool in that context so you just understand that it is cool because it is. of their confidence i mean and because he, of the, but the context of it he's blowing her out of the water 
Well, yeah. I mean, she's holding her own. Don't get me wrong. Certainly can dance better than me. Yeah, I think Uma was legitimately intimidated by dancing with John Travolta. And he was just like, just do it. Oh, yeah. Like, telling her, like, don't even think about it. Back at the house, this really is what I was talking about of expectations versus subverted expectations. Because they come back to the house dancing. And you're like, what the oh, fuck is you're going like, on is here? This going? Is this just going to be the story of, like, he fucks her? That's what it feels like we're headed. secret. Right. And what's he going to do? Is he going to get thrown off a balcony? <laughs> she puts on Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. It's the cover by Urge Overkill. I'm assuming, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming that Tarantino wanted to use yeah. the Neil Diamond one, and, and that was just over budget at this point. Now, it does feel like Vincent's still, at this point, he's able to sort of reset himself here get back to neutral he's like let me go to the bathroom yeah the him talk talking to himself down. in the bathroom is great yeah because it starts with him they're being gonna like, have a drink we'll just have a drink and that's it then you're gonna go home right. and then by the time he leaves the bathroom no he's like i'm not even gonna have the drink he's completely go. realized what he needs to do right you cannot fuck around in this situation it is not a joke <laughs> you just can't yeah no matter what you're thinking you want to do so while he's in the bathroom mia digging through his pockets she finds the heroin in a baggie. Vincent comes back to find that she's overdosed on the floor. Immediately. And you're just like, oh, shit, this is going somewhere I didn't expect. Leading to, by far, my favorite sequence in the movie. I fucking love him driving over, making the calls to Lance. <laughs> Their interactions all the way up to, like, driving onto the lawn. I just, <laughs> you know... <laughs> When he's explaining that he's bringing her over a shod or whatever, <laughs> and he's like, His "You gotta fucking man up and take her to the hospital." Negative, <laughs> no can do. He's like, "Wait, are you calling me on a cellular phone? <laughs> Who is this? Wrong number. I don't know you. Prank caller. Yeah. Prank caller." Yeah, I mean, he's sitting at home eating fruit brute, which is like one of Tarantino's things that he loves to just throw into a movie because oh, yeah. fruit brute hasn't existed for who knows how long. Some okay. old General Mills cereal. Right. And the phone is just ringing. I love how long <laughs> it's ringing. And then Jody is like, Lance, <laughs> the phone. He's yeah. like, yeah, I hear it. <laughs> he answers it on like the 20th ring. I thought you told ring. them not to call you. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to tell this asshole. Now, I know that there's obviously some cuts here. I mean, it involved like a car wreck and all this shit. But oh, for sure. almost from the minute that the phone rings up until they jab that needle into her heart. Yeah. It feels like one take because there are long takes in the middle of it. Listen, there's great performances throughout this movie. Obviously, we talked about Samuel L. Jackson. His delivery of dialogue is just on this whole other level. But the acting from everyone in this scene yeah i think it's just so good like travolta being like in a complete nervous panic lance just being like just stay the fuck away from here <laughs> but like then also being able to like rally in the scene and come through he doesn't want to deal with it but Once vincent's like oh yeah he mentions marcellus's name and marcellus's name carries weight he's like we this is his wife you have to do this and i do think all of that rehearsal and staying in that house and Rosanna Arquette and, and Eric Stoltz getting to know each other and practicing. It's like, oh, it yeah. all pays off in this because they're all just <laughs> screaming. Searching through that room of just like junk for this <laughs> medical book. I love when he comes out of that and they've been yelling at each other the whole time and she just is like, pig. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> but like, it's great because having her earlier in the movie. You got a Sharpie? A magic marker? I felt fucking pen. Having her earlier in the movie talk about how great getting pierced is with a long needle and not a gun 
this is like the ultimate needle to her. That's why she all of a sudden is like super into watching this and is like entranced oh, by right. it. Because yeah. you see that look on her face where she goes from being this bitch to like, I'm really into what I'm watching well, right now. Well, yeah, it makes sense. I, I never even thought about it. I mean, the escalation <laughs> of the situation that they're in. Yeah. It's kind of one of those moments where everyone's just like, well, this is a really make or break thing that's about to happen. Yeah. How's this going to go? Trudy still on the couch just doesn't know what the fuck's going on they draw the little circle on there they shot this in reverse so they have him like start at her chest and pull back rather than go down that's like the little trick of how they shot it Stoltz explaining it yeah you gotta just like puncture like doing the stabbing motion <laughs> like, i gotta stab her three times <laughs> no 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 just once <laughs> quit fucking around and give her the shot come on okay look while i'm doing this you take off her shirt and find her heart and that'd be exact. Yeah, it's got to be exact. You were shot in the heart, so I guess it's got to be fucking exact. I don't know exactly where her heart is. I mean, I think it's right here. That's it. This it? All right, what I need is a big, fat magic marker. You got it? What? A magic marker. A, a felt pen. A fucking black magic marker. All right. All right. Come on, man. Hurry up. Fuck. Okay, okay, okay. I think it's ready. All right, please hurry up, man. Okay. Hurry up. Here, I'll tell you what to do. No, 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 man, man, man. I ain't give, you, you, you're going to give it a shot. No, you're going to give it a shot. I ain't giving her no, a shot. I ain't giving her the shot. i never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. Look, you brought her here, and that means that you're going to give her the shot. The day that I bring an OD and bitch to your house, then I give her the shot. Give her the shot. Give it to me. Here. Give me that. All right, all right, tell me what to do. Okay, uh, you're giving her an injection of adrenaline straight to her heart, but she's got a breastplate. So you got to pierce through that. So what you got to do is you got to bring the needle down in a stabbing motion. I, I got I, I to gotta stab her three times? No, you don't got to fucking stab her three times. You got to stab her once, but it's got to be hard enough to get through her breastplate into her heart, all right? All right? And then once you do that, you pr press down on the, the plunger. Okay, then, what's ha then what happens? I'm curious about that myself. This ain't no fucking joke, man. Am I going to kill her? I mean, no, 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 she's supposed to come out of it like that. It's... All right, count to three. All right, ready? One. Two. <laughs> if you're all right, then say something. Something. <laughs> that was fucking trippy. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Yeah, it's unbelievable that these idiots could pull something like this off. Now, I've always heard that this comes from some documentary. I don't know what the fuck it was where somebody's talking about this happening and people are like, oh, he just took this from this documentary. It's like, I don't know, maybe he did, but. This wasn't in a movie before. It's well executed. And it looks cool. And it's got John Travolta and Eric Stoltz and Roseanne Arquette and Uma Thurman. And it's like, this is something that the world could see. It's like right. Tarantino was great at like finding these obscure things that seemed cool and bringing it to the masses in, in a new way. Oh, yeah. And so even if he didn't like come up with this idea in his head of an adrenaline shot, he still executed it. He took something that he heard about somebody talking about on a something or whatever, 
yeah. and then delivered it to us. And I, I just, Otherwise, we would have never known about this it. This is one of those things that like fits into the unique pacing of this movie. It's like just like this erratic heartbeat. You you have like these moments of violence, and then everything's just sort of moving along at a casual pace. And all of a sudden, it's just like a fucking race to somebody getting an adrenaline shot. Yeah, and I think when they were debuting this movie in New York, somebody went into like anaphylactic shock because their blood sugar was low, but it happened to be like right around when this happened, like right after. And it comes, oh, wow. somebody's screaming out, stop the movie. They have to like carry this person out. I think like literally Lawrence Bender and Harvey Keitel were like help, or not Harvey Keitel, Harvey Weinstein were like helping this guy out of the theater. And the story of course becomes somebody had a heart attack, oh, you know, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, in the mythology of this moment. And so then it gets the reputation of like the exorcist or jaws or whatever, where people are like freaking out and they right. can't believe it. And it added to That's a the nice buzz legend to of the movie. Yeah. But this is like one of those holy shit moments that oh, yeah. just grabs just, you by the throat oh, it's and demands so well. you pay attention. It, even the reaction of the room when she comes to. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they don't know what's going to happen. Right, and right. they're just like, whoa. Oh. And he's like, say something if you're okay. And she just says something. <laughs> I love how Quentin goes to that joke twice in this movie because Julia Sweeney at the end. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> he does the same thing where she just like repeats. Like, right. Whatever. Okay. So now after all of that, this takes us into parts four and five, which are essentially all one long thing, which is like the prelude to the gold watch and the gold watch. <laughs> yeah. The gold watch, the opening to it, obviously just like a twisted scene. Yeah. This flashback sequence with Captain Coons played by Christopher Walken chronologically is the first thing that happens in the movie because obviously it's a flashback to way back when butch is a little kid this monologue is hilarious and the fact that they just put it right here in the middle of the movie is kind of crazy and yet it works you just had this huge moment right it it feels like a reset it's like a a moment of humor sort of right after and that's just like like a rush that also fits in with that idea of how much bravado tarantino had as like a pretty new filmmaker to be like here's a four-page monologue and I'll tell delivered you by an actor that's not going to be in any other scenes <laughs> right yeah just out of the blue and it's not going to interrupt the flow and of this obviously movie. like walking does like a great job just like he's like a guy that can come in and just <laughs> none do of those this. boys had any illusions right. of getting off that island <laughs> But it is one of those things where it's like, if I'm an editor at the time, I mean, I might be getting to a point where I'm thinking, like, are we really going to include this scene? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but it works, though, when you actually see it. I know it does, but it almost feels like this is starting a whole nother movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that fits in with the whole thing of just jumping around all this different shit. You don't even know. It takes you a while. It takes you to see everything before you can even attempt to put it in order. Because, like, you don't really have all of the clues until the very end oh, of, yeah, like, what absolutely. order this all is even in. So Captain Coons delivers a watch to young Butch. This watch was the property of Butch's grandfather, who passed it on to his father, who died in war. Was it great-grandfather to grandfather to father, or was it grandfather to father? I think it was grandfather to father. You know, I don't recall that detail. It was purchased in Knoxville, Tennessee, a place where Tarantino Spent a lot of his early life Okay. between there and L.A. I'll give you three guesses as to which he liked better. (laughs) (laughs) And the first two don't count. It's not Knoxville. (laughs) But he does have Butch be from Knoxville and want to go back to Knoxville. There's talk of him returning there on his way out of the country after this whole ordeal. Right. 
So yeah, I mean, it's a hilarious monologue. Watches being crammed up asses. <laughs> Different shit happening. Wanaki being thrown out there, which is like a reference to, I think, a character in a Howard Hawks movie or something. Okay, gotcha. And the whole point of this story is basically Butch double-crosses Marcellus. He wins the boxing match he's supposed to throw. And by doing that, in the process of doing that, he actually kills his opponent by accident. Yeah. <laughs> I think they only throw that in to be like, not only did he win, I mean, he won one. Like, he was not fucking around. I mean, he was <laughs> right going all Had out. Had a point to prove here. Yeah. So, I think... We're probably going to have to split this into two episodes. Wow. <laughs> Unexpectedly. <Controversial> finish. <laughs> well, we're just reaching a certain point now where we're not really even that close to being over. I think it makes sense. There's so much content. We hate doing this, but... Should we go a few more minutes or should we just cut it right now? It probably makes sense to stop it here and launch more into the Butch stuff. Yes, yeah, so we're just giving a little teaser... People saw this pop up, they see like the Pulp Fiction title and they get excited and then it's like part one and they're like, sad. <laughs> well, the incentive right. to check out part two will be our discussion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's true. There's a little tease for you. And we're also going to give our personal rankings of all nine of Quentin Tarantino's feature films. Yeah, so a lot of little nuggets of joy to come. And for those of you who are like, oh man, the Butch storyline of Pulp Fiction, all they've already covered all the best stuff. It's like, no. There's still a lot of great shit left More in this come. movie. Yeah, I think even if you've seen this movie 20 times and you're watching it again, you forget how much more there is at a certain point because you get sure. so emotionally drained by the night out of Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace that you're like, well, that felt like a climax. But then you're like, oh, shit, the gimp. Oh, shit, the Bonnie situation. I, I know. I, I was <laughs> There's so say, much. Right. I mean, definitely the... Uh, adrenaline shot scene is my favorite in the whole movie but i i think like the bonnie situation sequence is right up there for me as well yeah so all right well yeah let's wrap you it love here. the controversial dialogue in that bonnie situation no, not, <laughs> man, not quite that but so anyway follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple Podcasts or itunes or Podbean. give us a rating and review if you can send us a tweet tell your friends about the show We've just done a ton of episodes. I know. <laughs> There's so much to go back and explore. A lot yeah. of fun. And it is one of those things where it's like recently talking to people at the show and they're like, oh, what have you done episodes on? It's like, well, let's look at the feed. And they're just Check like, out that feed, baby. What's black mama, white mama? Don't worry like, about it. Just keep scrolling. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to have heard of all of them. Right. All right. We can only do one episode on the house, Bunny. Although for Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was a listener, re listener recommendation. Yeah, I know listener request okay yeah we're if you listen to i know what you did last summer we had our recommendations oh, segment yeah well i'm gonna save my You're recommendations okay. for part two all right so check that feed for part two and we'll see you soon it was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well you could see that pierre did truly love the mademoiselle From the chapel bell. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks. It goes to show you never can tell. They furnished off an apartment with a two room robot sale. The coolerator was crammed with TV dinners and ginger ale. But when Pierre found work, the little money coming worked out well.
theory on what's in the suitcase no and i don't want to know really uh-uh oh well, i'm gonna tell you my theory okay can totally. i tell you my theory is it's rock and roll <laughs> and this is a theory that i heard passed around to me and then i realized it was actually something that was passed around on the internet. And I did a little research. Okay, so Marcellus represents the origin of rock music in America. Blues, Motown, Soul. Jules is Chuck Berry. Vincent is Elvis. They go get the briefcase back because the nerdy white guys are trying to steal it. Okay, maybe they represent greedy record producers that profited off of it. And the reason why that guy unloads a gun at them and is unable to hit them is because legends of music can never die and they will always be around forever. And Jules realizes this and he realizes that he's fighting a pointless fight uh, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny happen to be British, and they also try to take the briefcase. They represent the British invasion. The British invasion was completely influenced by the blues and older pop music. Jules lets them leave with the money but keeps his bad motherfucker wallet, which shows that they can steal and be influenced by older music, but they can't take the style. They have to come up with their own style. And uh, and then Butch is this boxer who is being told by Marcellus to throw a fight, but Butch represents a new and interesting kind of rock music that continues to come out, and Marcellus doesn't like this. Butch doesn't throw the fight, but he runs away. Butch is dressed like Kenny Loggins. <laughs> but they both get captured by rednecks while a country song is playing, and the rapists represent country music. Country music stole a lot from the blues and other black music, and this is shown by them raping Marcellus, and then Butch has a chance to escape but decides to go back and save him out of respect. Marcellus agrees to let Butch live, and there's a truce, and they go their separate ways. Marcellus accepts that there will always be new music and there's nothing you can do to stop it and the watch represents that as time moves on more new music will continue to be made and they'll all be influenced by what came before them 